on one hand it can make some terrible unfair decisions but on the other hand it can help us get more female superheroes on our cinema screens. It is all about AI and big data and on this episode of Sideload we're going to be talking all about that with a data scientist. Welcome to episode 42 of Sideload. Welcome to Sideload, the technology podcast from Edelman, London. I'm Jermaine Dallas and on the show today we're looking at the good, the bad and everything associated with AI, big data and machine learning. So will the technology make us better as a society and in business or will it just give us some complicated systems to hide behind? Uh, there's uh, concerns about algorithms going rogue behind our backs but when used correctly, there's a lot that can be achieved. So uh, crunching the data with us today is Anjali Betty. Anjali leads Edelman's Predictive Intelligence Centre, which builds solutions to solve business challenges through big data. Uh, previously, she worked in content programming and data consultancy for some major Hollywood studios. Anjali, thanks so much for joining us on Silo today and coming all the way from Singapore to do so. Uh, thanks for having me. So, first of all, big question to start us off, actually. Uh, we hear stories of all the, all the time, for example, of algorithms being trained to inadvertently, and we, we hope inadvertently, give harsher prison sentences to black people, for example. Uh, but the argument is that if we take humans out of key decisions, um, such as sentencing, it will make the system fairer. So, does machine learning expose unconscious bias, or does it perpetuate it? That's an excellent question, and I love that you're starting the, the podcast with this question as well. It actually does both. The challenge is, let's say we took human beings out of the conviction process, and it was just machines that were actually going to tell us who committed the crime. The challenge is, one has to train those machines to actually give an output. And you train the algorithms on historical data. And the historical data is fundamentally inaccurate. And we see reports of this all the time of African-Americans or people of a socioeconomic status who are falsely convicted of committing certain crimes because the police or whoever arrested them automatically assumed that that was the person. It was their bias that they were actually inputting into that particular case. So even if you take human beings out of the picture, our biases live on and it lives on in the historical data. So at this stage, you either have to correct the data or correct the model, or you have to keep human beings in the picture, but also help teach them to control their own biases and to actually evaluate both the data as well as whatever perceptions they might be using when looking at a particular case, which is of utmost importance. And I think it gets to an even deeper question of can, can machines replace human beings? Ultimately, probably not. There are certain things we're going to be able to automate using machine learning, but ultimately machine learning and AI is going to make us smarter and make us smarter in our decision making, but not necessarily replace us. You need the combination of the two. Yeah, and I suppose as well there are some things that humans are better at doing and decisions that humans are better at making and, and machines um, can pick up the slack in those other areas, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think where machine learning is great is that it gives us facts and it gives us facts at scale. And it also can aggregate different data points that the human mind can't consciously aggregate because there's too many disparate factors. But at the end of the day, you still need a human being who has intuition, intelligence, 
and understanding of context and understanding of emotion can actually evaluate body language to actually make some of those decisions as well, but to you to do that in a way that's more intelligent and informed by AI. And when you put those two forces together, that's really powerful. So give me some examples then of what happens when AI is misused. All right, well, <laughs> there are many examples of, of when AI is misused. And I think um, probably t forefront of everyone's mind would be uh, Cambridge Analytica in that sense. Um, and I wouldn't say that's accidental misuse, that is intentional misuse to actually sway an electorate a particular way by amplifying people's fears and by amplifying particular biases, which yes, you can identify those in data. It's why you know, my home country, the United States, why we had you know, red feed, blue feed, and that was something that was widely spoken about after the election, but running up to it, Nobody understood that their version of reality that they were being fed on Facebook wasn't actually reality. And that is problematic. So it's a combination of, yes, AI is being misused in that case, and it's being used to perpetuate certain fears and to influence a certain outcome. Um, and there are fun stories I could tell you about Russian chatbots influencing our elections for, for days. Um, but the reality is, is that we, as an educated citizenry, need to find ways to safeguard ourselves against that through media literacy and by getting more involved in the conversation and by trying to demystify AI, not by being afraid of what it is. Yeah, um, but but how, how do we do that though? Be because um, there's, there's a wide spectrum of people that are, for example, affected by elections and some will take the time to read a bit deeper into the information they're getting, but some won't. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a few ways of doing that with news. And part of it, if you think about curation mechanisms, which this is actually part of my old life, where I used to design recommendation engines and curation strategies at scale in, in an automated way for um, a, a OTT provider in Asia. And part of the challenge is that if you're only curating content based on what you know, you predict someone will want to see, you're only going to feed them one version of reality. So there is actually something that tech companies can do algorithmically to actually diversify the types of content that people are seeing. So that's one way. The other way is to actually educate, to have programs that educate people about the types of content they're seeing and why they're seeing it. Uh, and I think this is a really powerful force to actually motivate people from a behavioral perspective to start looking at different types of content and finding different ways to incentivize that. So that's one key area. I think when it comes to actually understanding AI though, I think a lot of people are terrified of it. They don't know what it actually is. It's this weird blanket statement like big data that nobody really understands. And even just taking the time to actually read some initial articles just to start wrapping your head around it. Look at some charts if you're a more visual artistic person you'll sort of get a sense of where it fits into the whole spectrum of things. And I think those little steps just to educate yourself can go a really, really long way in understanding what AI is and its implications for society. What are the implications of the misuse of data? I, the implications of the misuse of data, I mean, we're, we're living it in many ways. Um, part of it is a, a, an erosion of democracy and, and compromising democracy. Um, other aspects of it are that you have prison systems or prison recommendation engines essentially that are falsely convicting people and doing so at scale. 
so there are all sorts of societal implications for this. Um, another one would be actually HR managers who use any sort of AI systems to identify potential candidates. If those machines are using certain natural language processing dictionaries that indicate that some types of names or some types of profiles are better than others, we're actually opening ourselves up to racial bias in our hiring processes. So you can see, I think from, from end to end, every spectrum of our society, it can be problematic if AI is misused. Sure. So is there any way of making these very opaque algorithms more accountable and transparent? Yeah, absolutely, there is. Um, there are very specific inputs that go into algorithms. Most people don't know what those inputs are. Or what and that's the problem, are. isn't it? Exactly. So I think even if, let's say, you have your fed certain pieces of content, a little explanation on the side or like a chatbot popping up and saying, hey, this is why you got this. Give us some feedback. It'll go a long way in terms of educating people of why they're seeing something that they're seeing and what the whole process is driving the platforms that they stare at every day. Um, so I think that would be a really powerful mechanism. But there needs to be more transparency introduced into the content that we're fed, the models that we're fed, all, all of the above. Sure, sure. We're going to talk a bit more about AI for good and getting more female superheroes on our screens. Uh, but first, let's take a look in the rearview mirror and check out this clip from the last episode of Sideload, where we talked all about tech in Africa. tech is, is being perceived positively, um, but there is an expectation definitely that big companies need to be very authentic in their intentions to supporting the communities within which they operate. And we actually saw that information coming out in the trust barometer data where people expect tech companies to be able to increase profits and improve the socio-economic conditions of the communities within which they operate. And that's never more true than in Africa. I think um, big companies like Microsoft, Facebook, Google, AWS, they're doing great stuff and all of these companies are invested in a lot of education initiatives in the ICT sector um, which makes good business sense too right because that's their talent pipeline and you need to make sure that you've got a diverse mix of people coming into your talent pipeline to sustain you for your future for your innovations and it also supports the, the need for jobs on the continent and economic growth so a lot of companies really do recognize that and it, it's a great time for big companies now because these two needs are intersecting really neatly um, and as I said making making great business sets. You're listening to Sideload and today we're talking all about the way AI is changing society, business and comms. Data analytics expert Anjali Betty is here to talk to us all about that. So um, AI can also be used for good as well as the bad that we've already spoken about. So tell me about the work that you did with female characters in superhero movies. Yeah, absolutely. So back in 2013, which seems like a long time ago now, there was a raging debate in Hollywood about two very specific topics whether female there were actually female fans of superhero movies shocking to have <laughs> idea um, and also whether female superhero characters should have their own feature film and there was a raging debate about this because most of the studio heads thought it was a horrendous business proposition to star a female superhero character in their movie and they usually would refer to to Catwoman with Halle Berry and if you watch that movie, I mean, Halle Berry's phenomenal as an actress, but 
the way the character was written, it really it over-sexualized the character. You don't get a full spectrum and a full range of the character's attributes. You don't hook on to the story, which of course was the counter-argument, but because there were a couple of data points supporting the fact that, oh, a female superhero-led movie won't sell, nobody wanted to touch it. And that was part of the debate going on around whether Wonder Woman should be greenlit at that time. So uh, a major Hollywood studio came to my innovation lab, which was at the University of Southern California, with the scope of work of, we want to understand whether female fans are valuable, and if so, what is their value? How are they engaging with superhero content? Is it just that their boyfriends and husbands are forcing them to watch it, or do they actually like it? Again, slightly ridiculous question to be asking in 2019, but back then that was part of the debate. And then the last question was, is, is there a business case for female-led superhero movies, and how should we be positioning our female characters? Do we focus more on you know, their softer qualities, a painful past, a tragic romance, or do we actually present them as empowered characters? So I think if, whenever anybody hears a study that has to do with you know, demographics, immediately they're like, oh, you must have segmented your audience by men versus women. We, in fact, did not do that, which is, I think, why our approach was so effective. So we took a uh, psychological-led approach. So there is a uh, school of computational social science called psychometrics and behavioral science where we can actually quantify somebody's psychological attributes, such as why they are motivated to engage with the content that they love. What are the characters that they're motivated to engage with? And, and how do they interact as a result of, of their love for the fandom? So we used a, a certain psychometric and behavioral models to identify what were the core drivers causing people to interact with particular types of content or particular experiences. And through that, we were actually able to identify that there was actually, A, that there are female superhero fans of superhero movies, shocking. Uh, Who'd have thought? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Crazy idea. Um, and that they are actually quite valuable. We were able to quantify that. Um, but what we found is that they interact very differently from men. And I think when people think of superhero fans, they automatically assume it's, we're talking about fanboys who are on Reddit, having a massive debate, and they're total geeks. But that's not the superhero fandom. Superheroes are the modern version of Greek mythology, essentially, yeah. if you think about it. It's attributes we aspire to have in ourselves, and it's a very powerful motivating force in that regard. And so, of course, that's going to have a much more expansive audience that interacts very differently than, you know, just the sort of stereotypical comic book geek, right? Yeah. So what we found was that female fans were interacting much more on image sharing and content sharing platforms. So Facebook, Instagram, the types of conversations they were having were different. The language they were using around the fandom was different. And they really connected to other people through the love of the fandom. And it could be close friends, it could be a spouse, it could be their children, but there was a very strong social connection element. And then most importantly, they, they identified with the characters themselves, which is really important in terms of framing superhero characters because what they didn't, ident they didn't identify with those softer qualities. What they identified with was the aspirational component. Another form of identification was that it reminded them of their childhood in a very profound way. So it brought back a lot of nostalgia. It's you know, how they used to interact with their parents or their siblings. So when you know that about somebody, it helps you design a whole range of content experiences and even storytelling itself to that particular fan base. 
so that's women specifically. I think what we found, which was interesting with the men, was that they were also calling for an empowered portrayal of female characters based on what was in the comic book. Hmm. So that desire for accuracy and authenticity, particularly when we're in a, a, a media landscape where people who are diehard comic book fans think that the studios are moving too far away from the comic books and from the original creators. So that was a really powerful force, but ultimately the two wanted the same thing, which was empowered female superhero characters and female superhero-led movies. Um, so through that approach, we were actually able to predict that Wonder Woman would be a success, um, which I, I think was quite powerful. Um, but ultimately, it really gave us the data points and the intelligence that we needed to say there is a business case for diverse stories and for, for empowered gender stories as well, which hadn't really existed up till that point. So were you responsible for Wonder Woman getting greenlit in the last week? I wish. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will I will never take credit for that. There are probably there are so many conversations about Wonder Woman getting greenlit at that point. Yeah. I would love to think that had something to do with it. Um I, I sort of have dreams and fantasies about that, but uh, you know, I, I think the research stands for itself in terms of a identifying how you can take something that is, in a way, it is a social issue. Looking at gender empowerment in today's society, and this was pre me too, right? Mm. So at least now people are more willing to say, okay, well, gender issues are still issues, and it still exists. Where you know, I think, especially in the United States under Obama, everyone wanted to pretend like we live in a post-sexist, post-racist world where none of these problems exist. So it's a really powerful way of surfacing that there was this undercurrent that needed to be addressed. And here's a great way of addressing it in the kinds of content that you're creating and in the stories that you're telling. So you've been working on some other projects as well, haven't you, that show how AI can be used for good. So could you tell me about some of it? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, the biggest projects I'm working on for AI for good is around uh, human trafficking. So most people, when they think of human trafficking, they think of a girl in dungeon in chains who's a victim of sex trafficking. That's a very narrow subset of trafficking, but trafficking is actually many things. Um, and we use data to identify the different forms of trafficking, how people are being trafficked, who's trafficking them, and what are the financial flows driving the business of trafficking? Because ultimately trafficking is actually globally a $150 billion business. And yes, I said billion. It is a $150 billion That's business. Huge, yeah. It's massive. And it touches every facet of society. It's in probably the clothes I'm wearing right now, the breakfast I ate this morning, the buildings I sit in on a regular basis when I'm back in Asia, perhaps even in, in the UK as well. Uh, but trafficking is quite literally everywhere and most of us are just not aware of it. So data analytics is a very powerful way of surfacing what the patterns are. This trafficking exists in places where you can't see it and data is the flashlight that actually shows you the way. It's a very powerful mechanism in that sense. Um, so we collect data from a lot of different sources. So NGOs, court cases, news articles, uh, open source, classifieds, and we analyze and aggregate all of that data through machine learning uh, techniques. And then that gives us the outputs that we need to actually be able to engage different stakeholders to disrupt trafficking uh, in the way that is most effective for them. So if we have like a airline, for example, we can come to them with data saying, hey, we've been able to identify that the route from Manila to um, Dubai is uh, ridden with trafficking on your particular airline. Uh, 
these are the profiles of the victims that we're seeing and now let, let us help you train your staff to identify who these people are so that way you can actually rescue them while they're in transit. So it's those sorts of activities where data is what gives us the power to actually systematically disrupt it. And is it driving action? So that example that you mentioned, are the airlines saying, hang on a minute, that sounds really bad. We're going to listen to you and, and um, work with you to make change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually one of our, our biggest partners in the fight against trafficking are financial institutions. And I think there's a perception that all banks are evil and they don't care about people and, you know, they're capitalist and they're trying to rob the world. But the reality is, is they are very, very engaged in trying to disrupt human trafficking and in trying to identify trafficking patterns because nobody in modern society believes that we should be talking about slavery in the 21st century. And it's a bit insane that we still are. So they are actually very engaged in the fight against it. Um, and they have certain machine learning models that they use to identify suspicious transactions. So what we're then able to do, if we know that somebody, let's say in Ethiopia, is being sold for a very specific amount of money and from certain banks, we can actually flag that specific amount to that particular financial institution so they're alerted to the fact that they need to adapt their machine learning models to those particular inputs. So in, in that world they refer to as, as typologies. So we help them improve those typologies with the context that we're collecting from local intelligence on the ground. Will we be using data more in comms in the future? And if so, how? Absolutely, we will without a doubt be using data more in comms. I think the power of communications, if you think of it, about it from like an earned media context, is you need to create stories that are emotionally engaging. And you need to place the person at the center of that story and figure out what drives them, what pulls them towards that story, especially given the content and the digital environment we live in. And data is a really powerful tool for doing that. So if I know that you are an open-minded person who loves adventure, loves travel, has certain political views, has a certain perception of the world, absolutely I'm going to be able to, to tell a story to you that's more effective and that emotionally engages you. Um, and it's really looking at who you are as a human being and why you think the way that you do. And that's a very powerful mechanism for storytelling. Absolutely. Angeli, thanks so much for joining us on the show. And a big thanks to you for listening to this episode of Sideload. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And we are now on Spotify. Hooray! It's where all the kids are apparently these days. Just search Edelman UK. And if you want to get in touch with us, send us an email to sideload at edelman.com. See you next time. <laughs>